Welcome back, everyone. I want to explore a continuation of what we opened up uh, two weeks ago on the theme of what I maintained is the most central teaching of the Buddha, and I would say of the entire tradition. It's a teaching which is encompassed by the Buddha's phrase, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And I'll go back over the meaning of dukkha, but what I'd like to do is to fairly briefly review some of the main points from two weeks ago and then highlight what we didn't give as much time to two weeks ago, which is the exploration of different ways of practicing with this teaching, different ways of practicing non-reactivity. Because I'll talk about reactivity as I would maintain the most central meaning of dukkha for our practice. And so we'll focus today, especially on ways of practicing, I'll say more about that, and then we'll leave a lot of time to share and explore some of what may have come up in our own practice, because my invitation two weeks ago was to practice non-reactivity, to explore reactivity, to become experts on one's main forms of reactivity and how to work with those forms. So that's my, that's my intention for today. And I'll just uh, repeat, I think, what I said two weeks ago, which is that it's a pleasure to be back with the uh, Benicia group, with the Benicia Insight Meditation community. And as Sarah mentioned, I came out regularly to Benicia for two plus years. And we had a very good time. We had different kinds of themes. I remember people were very dedicated. There were people who wrote up summaries of my talks and posted them online. I remember that. It was really, uh, I felt I was uh, treated very kindly and supportively. So it's good to be back. So the Buddha did say, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And that could be seen as, and I, I would see it this way, as right at the center of the entire tradition, the core of the teachings. And yet, it can be confusing to know what the Buddha means by this. What does dukkha and the end of dukkha mean? The main reason that it's confusing is that there are multiple meanings of dukkha that the Buddha gave. And we explored these last time. That I mentioned that the Buddha did not have an editor running around after him saying, you know, 
Well, last week you used dukkha in this sense, and this week you're using it a little differently. And, you know, and how does that all square with dukkha and the end of dukkha? And so there are actually multiple meanings of dukkha in the text. And in fact, probably the main way that we have heard the word dukkha translated is as suffering, as the English word suffering, which is a good translation of one of what I'll identify as four meanings of dukkha, four different meanings of dukkha that we find in the text. And the first one that is probably the most common is dukkha as something like suffering, as uh, painful experiences. I mentioned last time that the etymology of the word dukkha is related to the word uh, du, which means bad or difficult, and ka, which means empty. And it's sometimes associated with a axle, an axle of a cart that is off-center. And so there's a bumpy ride. And so this probably most common account of dukkha was, as we could say, the painful, the difficult, the unpleasant. You know, that would be found in passages that many of us know, passages like uh, in talking about the Four Noble Truths, where the question is asked, what is the noble truth of dukkha? And then the Buddha answers, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain and grief and despair are dukkha, not to obtain what one wants is dukkha. So this is the most common meaning uh, in the text, and it's probably the meaning that we most hear. And when teachers uh, analyze the Four Noble Truths, probably you know, uh, the most well-known teaching the first noble truth is dukkha, the second is the cause of dukkha, the third is the meaning of the end of dukkha, and the fourth is the way to the end of dukkha. Usually dukkha is understood as uh, suffering, as the painful. And yet we can ask, does that make sense of the meaning of the end of dukkha? Do painful experiences and difficult experiences uh, end when there's awakening? And if we take the Buddha to have achieved awakening, it's very clear that the answer is no. The Buddha, especially later in his life, as his body was uh, becoming, what, less uh, healthy, he had uh, headaches and a bad back, unpleasant experiences, but presumably he was awake. And so the answer to the question, does, a does identifying dukkha as a difficult experience 
clarify what the end of dukkha means, I would say the answer is no. And it's similar with two other common meanings of dukkha in the text. One, a second one is viparanama dukkha, which is the dukkha of alternation, the fact that a pleasant experience because of impermanence will eventually become unpleasant. In other words, pleasant experiences don't last. This is taken to be dukkha. And yet we can ask, does that ever end? No. As long as one is alive, it doesn't end. So presumably, even when one is an awake human being or in moments of awakening, that can occur. So I would say that doesn't give an answer to the question about the meaning of the end of dukkha either. And similarly with the third common meaning, which is dukkha as the fact that no phenomenal ordinary experience can give lasting satisfaction. This can give us a hint as to what the end of dukkha means, but if we take that to be a form of dukkha, as it is in the text, it's called sankara dukkha. We can ask, does that ever end? No, that's the nature of experience, that nothing of an ordinary phenomenal nature can give lasting satisfaction. And so we're left really asking what is the meaning of dukkha? What's a meaning that gives a sense of the end of dukkha? What can possibly end? And I'm going to say that the answer to that is dukkha as reactivity. And this is brought out in several main teachings. And last time I identified two main teachings. One is the teaching of the two arrows, very fundamental teaching, which is that we, when we have an unpleasant experience, we're, as it were, shot by an arrow. The Buddha called this the first arrow. Everyone experiences this. What distinguishes a mature practitioner from a non-practitioner is that when one is shot by the first arrow, unpleasant physical sensations, unpleasant interactions with someone, unpleasant thoughts, the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow at oneself or others as if this would help. Blames oneself, blames others, contracts physically, emotionally, and so forth. But the mature practitioner learns to be with the unpleasant, we could say, without reactivity. This gives us a sense of what the end of dukkha is. If I would say that the first arrow is dukkha. And the second arrow, when we don't shoot it, takes us into the realm of non-reactivity. And this is the end of dukkha when we don't shoot the second arrow. The first arrow, or the second arrow, is precisely the arrow of reactivity. 
And so the Buddha, in giving this teaching, was really pointing to, I think, what is, again, at right at the core of his, his teaching, the teaching of the, uh, of the end of dukkha. And the other, the other fundamental teaching where the Buddha outlined this approach is in the teaching of dependent origination, which was the teaching from his night of awakening. And this is what we explored some in the guided meditation, where we saw how when we're not aware and under the uh, sort of the control of habitual tendencies, when we have a pleasant experience, we will tend to want and then grasp after the pleasant. I would call that one form of reactivity. With the unpleasant, we will tend to not want it and push it away. And this would be the, these would be the two forms of reactivity. And this is dukkha. And so I would say that the end of dukkha is the end of reactivity. And interestingly, we find something like this in a further line from the earlier text about uh, dukkha that I gave you, the one that began, what is the noble truth of suffering? Or what is the noble truth of dukkha? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, and so forth. And at the, at the end of that passage, the Buddha says, in short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are dukkha. That's different from what he was just saying in a way. Before he was saying basically painful or difficult experiences are dukkha. And now he's saying whatever comes with clinging, and we could add uh, pushing away, is dukkha. So we find even in one passage multiple meanings of dukkha. But I'm going to maintain that the core meaning of dukkha is that of reactivity. And this is one way of talking about what the whole aim of the practice is, coming to non-reactivity. And what we can also see when we look further is that this could be expressed in different ways. You know, non-reactivity gives us language that's very practical and we, it can guide us in our practice of working with, with and transforming reactivity. That, uh, that grabbing after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. And again, it's important to know that we can have this reactivity in a hundred different ways. You know, it can be uh, the reactivity, as I mentioned in the guided practice, of being with reactivity at the level of the body. I contract around unpleasant sensations. I mentioned last time that the first medical intervention with mindfulness was in the area of chronic pain, where they found that mindfulness could be especially valuable in large part because a significant percentage of many forms of chronic pain is in shooting the second arrow. It's in the reactivity. Some 
studies as much as 80% of what people experience as chronic pain is not the simple stimulus, but it's the contraction. You know, physically, and of course, it's huge mentally, emotionally. So we can really see that it can take place at the body. It can take place at the level of uh, my emotions. I don't like certain emotions. When I get angry, maybe as was the case in my upbringing, I was told that anger is not a good emotion to have. Get rid of it. I was essentially told, be reactive, develop reactivity when you get angry. Get rid of it, stuff it, right? Eventually, you can see that a lot of reactivity becomes virtually unconscious and habitual. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of our deeper patterns of reactivity were installed at the, you know, in early childhood, some of them through social and cultural conditioning. And and so the, the key here is that reactivity takes many, many forms. Some of it's more conscious, some of it's more habitual, automatic, and unconscious, can take place at the level of thoughts when I don't like what I'm thinking. Or I'm, you know, let's say I'm starting to blame myself, and then I blame myself for blaming myself. That's shooting the second arrow. And, and I should say the shooting the second arrow, as I think I mentioned last time, is code for shooting the second through the 485th arrow all the way up to the 9,433rd arrow. And so it means we can keep on doing it. And a lot of uh, conflicts between people, between countries, are, can be understood in terms of mutual shooting of arrows at each other, mutual reactivity. And so you can see how valuable it can be to intervene with cycles of reactivity and end reactivity. When I end reactivity on my part in an interpersonal conflict, it changes the whole dynamics. It's way harder for the other person to keep on with reactivity if I'm not reactive. In other words, it takes two to tango in terms of reactivity very often. And so this non-reactivity could be expressed also um, as uh, having a certain kind of freedom in our experience where I'm not simply uh, at the mercy of the pleasant and the unpleasant. You know, when there's freedom, when there's love, when there are other expressions of our deeper nature, there's, there's a kind of non-reactivity there. You know, we, you know, we would say that love or metta is also uh, non-reactive. And so our practice takes us in this direction. And I want to mention uh, uh, an interesting aspect of reactivity, which we looked at last time, which is that we don't simply stuff reactivity or get rid of it. Rather, I would say we transform reactivity. And a reason for saying that, and this is a really crucial point, is that very often there can be 
some insights connected with my reactivity. We can see this most, obvious, most obviously in certain forms of being judgmental or blaming, and probably most easily when someone else maybe has done something unethical or when I'm very reactive about social injustice, right? When I, I can be deeply reactive when someone is unethical, but I'm seeing something important. Same thing with injustice. And so what happens is that reactivity often gets mixed with some kind of noticing or insight that's quite important. And if we simply stuff the reactivity, like if I, if I have a lot of reactivity about my uh, co-worker having not kept an agreement, to give, a, give an example I think I explored last time, not keeping an agreement, and I simply suppress and get rid of the reactivity, I lose the insight about the other person's not keeping the agreement. So what I want to do is somehow keep the insight or the observation that's very commonly, mostly, I think, linked up with reactivity and transform the reactivity in different ways through mindfulness, through compassion, through loving kindness, so that I can actually respond to the situation without reactivity. That's our aim. But I can preserve the insights, really crucial dimension of our practice. You know, I can keep the insight about my coworker having done something I think that's unethical, and I can return to the situation and bring up the issue without reactivity. That would be our aim in that situation. Or similarly, be involved in efforts uh, at justice, having done inner work to work through my own reactivity about the injustice. I would say when there's reactivity with an activist, I would say the reactivity tends to poison, in a sense, the activism. And we see that all over the place, right? And I, I've done some trainings with activists on these issues. It's a major issue. You know, I, I think I mentioned last time that I was involved with a conference on spiritual activism and gave a workshop on what is the curriculum for spiritual activists. And I asked, first of all, what's the major problem that you have in your groups or organizations? And they said that we all, they didn't use this language, but I would translate it as saying, we have a lot of reactivity towards each other in the organization. We get angry, we snipe at each other, we blame each other. Yeah, maybe because we can't get at the people who are causing the problems. <laughs> Yeah, but they, that was that was very very common. So that's a really uh, crucial dimension here. And then one other aspect that I didn't mention last time about uh, where we're going to in terms of non-reactivity is that non-reactivity, when it becomes stabilized in our being starts to take us towards the territory of the sacred. It starts to take us towards Nibbana, to use the Buddha's language. That, I think the, 
the Buddha once said, he said this, you may, know, you may remember this passage, our minds and hearts are radiant and brightly shining. And then when they are felt as radiant, they are free from reactivity. They are free from visiting defilements. And so the Buddha, as with later Buddhist traditions, talked about our, uh, our original being as beautiful, bright, luminous, actually beyond concepts. And yet, when we get enmeshed in reactivity, that, that deep nature of ours gets covered over. So practicing to cultivate non-reactivity opens us up to our deeper, deeper being. This is from one of the great teachers in the Thai forest tradition, Achan Man from Thailand. Achan just means teacher, as many of you know. He says, this mind and heart are originally radiant and clear. That's really, really the words of the Buddha. This mind and heart are originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure them, they don't show their radiance. And he's really referring to the forms of reactivity. And this is from, uh, this is from Achan Cha, the great, uh, also great Thai teacher. And in this, this is a beautiful passage where he's counseling non-reactivity as one's basic way of living. And he uses a metaphor that some of you may know. He says, take the one seat. Just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actions, all kinds of temptations and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will arise. Just stay with the whole flow of phenomena without reactivity, and out of that wisdom, understanding, and an opening to our depths occurs. And so then the question is how to practice. And last time we looked briefly at the ways of practicing, and I gave a handout that I brought last time on 10 ways of studying and transforming reactivity or dukkha. And I'll mention these, I'll mention a number of them, and then, we'll, then we can have our discussion and both ask questions, but also share some of what we might have explored about how to work with reactivity. And the first way of practice is to cultivate qualities of non-reactivity in our being. These become many of our main tools. So we cultivate mindfulness. Mindfulness in itself is non-reactive. We sometimes say mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. Mindfulness of anger is not angry. Mindfulness has this quality of integrating non-reactivity, of just being with the experience without adding or subtracting. 
We also develop qualities of the heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, maybe gratitude, forgiveness, and something like metta, loving kindness, is similarly non-reactive. The kind heart doesn't, in, doesn't include reactivity. So we may be not deliberately focusing on reactivity when we're developing mindfulness. We might just be with our breath, noticing thoughts. Or when we develop loving kindness, we may not be explicitly focusing on reactivity, but developing those two qualities and others, we're developing qualities that do not involve reactivity. We could say they are, they are non-reactive. And so, you know, in a similar way, we follow the ethical guidelines. And the ethical guidelines typically uh, do not involve reactivity as well. Another way that's really fundamental to work with reactivity, I think I gave this last time, is to study one's own personal top five, or maybe top 10. What are my top five forms of reactivity? Where do I go most quickly or most commonly? You know, and it's gonna be different for different ones of us, but that's really, really helpful to identify, study, take notes, you know, take notes um, every day. What did I find today? What were my main forms of reactivity today? Make the intention to notice in the morning. At the end of the day, review. What were my forms of reactivity? You know, is, is my main form of reactivity at the level more of the body or at the level maybe more of the mind, maybe being judgmental? Very common form. You know, uh, that I, t I teach on a lot, as, as Sarah mentioned. You know, is it, um, is the form of uh, reactivity more directed towards myself or directed towards others? Is it directed towards parts of my own experience? Or are there parts of my own experience which I don't like, which I have reactivity towards? And again, a very, you know, really related to this, I mentioned this last time, very, very central to the exploration of reactivity, since so much of it takes us into painful territory, is developing the heart practices, and particularly, I would say, compassion. This is uh, really, really central, not just to develop more resources for non-reactivity, but to be able to hold what is painful and really, in a way, uh, give us balance to be with the painful. A lot of working with reactivity is going into and being mindful of painful territory. And so it's almost like we need to be with what is also uplifting. If we're solely just going into this difficult territory, sometimes it can be unbalancing. And so it's really helpful to do that, which, as it were, brings in the other dimension, which brings in beauty, 
if you're doing a lot of work with reactivity, spend a lot of time with beauty, with the forest, with the mountains, with the flowers, with the trees, with, uh, with art, with music. So this is, this is not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha didn't say, if you're really studying reactivity, you know, do a lot of dancing. That wasn't the, what the Buddha said, but I'm saying that. <laughs> if, you're, if you're going in a lot into painful territory, spend time going into beautiful territory as a way of keeping balance when we, uh, when we have a certain amount of time with what's uh, difficult or painful. That's a third way of practicing. A fourth way of practicing is particularly having a lookout when we have a difficult experience or a painful experience, for especially one that might be you know, lasting for a few days, that we might uh, uh, be able to um, notice when we shoot the second arrow. I think I mentioned last time, the most common guidance I give in working one-on-one -on -one with people is saying something like this. You've had or you're in the middle of a difficult experience. Watch out for the shooting of the second arrow. Because it goes with the teaching that if we are not mindful and we have difficult experiences, we will tend to shoot the second arrow at ourselves or others. And so watching out for that shooting of the second arrow is a really crucial uh, dimension of practice. A guideline which I, or a way of practicing which I suggested really in the guided meditation is related to the fact that we can work with reactivity skillfully when it's in the uh, workable range, when it's not too much, when when our reactivity is more overwhelming or on that scale of one to 10 as a nine or a 10, we may not be able to use mindfulness. We may then just say, what helps me to come back to balance? When my reactivity is at a level of nine or 10 or more overwhelming, what can I do to come back to balance? And we might look at um, doing something physical, talking to a friend, uh, you know, for sometimes it can be doing metta meditation. But for me, often, you know, really doing something with the body is really, really key. You know, doing something vigorous with the body can be really, really helpful for, for grounding. Another crucial aspect of working with reactivity is related to what I mentioned earlier, that reactivity can be intermixed and typically is, with some kind of insight or some kind of noticing that's actually important, some kind of observation. I notice something and I immediately, you know, I go into blaming or judging mode. I notice someone doing something, either someone close to me or could just be out when I'm in a public space. Develop the capacity to reflect is there something valuable mixed in with my reactivity? We can do that probably easily sometimes when it's someone uh, 
when we're being judgmental or blaming, and we can ask, you know, maybe towards ourselves or someone else, what did I do? You know, uh, or what is it that actually I'm noticing that's leading to my reactivity? We very, very commonly find ourselves in a situation and maybe start blaming or judging ourselves when we, uh, you know, when we notice our something isn't quite going like we like like it to be going. I was talking with someone earlier, with whom I work, who was talking about just a kind of everyday situation of having promised uh, to give a dinner party for six people on a day when she actually found out that she was exhausted. And she actually wished she hadn't made that promise. Now, if one was just responding skillfully to the situation, she could just say, oh, I did this. What can I learn from this? How can I be skillful right now, noticing that I've overcommitted? What can I do? You know, and, you know, and, the answer might be to uh, really say, let me really learn for next time. But she said, none of that happened. What happened to her, she went very deeply into self-judgment. I'm just messing up my life. You know, went into old familiar self-judgmental patterns where there was an insight that she was doing too much. That was a valuable insight, but she didn't even... Notice that she went right into very, very harsh self-criticism. And so that ability to distinguish between the insight or the noticing, again, most obvious when there's been something done that's unethical or we're noticing what's unjust, then, you know, we can probably do it more easily. But it's often like in situations like the one I mentioned, where... Uh, we just get caught up in the reactivity, as she did. You know, she was caught up for hours in that reactivity and never really went to the point of, oh, it's just a difficult situation that I, and I can respond skillfully to that. So that way of working with reactivity is to ask, is there an insight or noticing or observation that's mixed in with the reactivity? Because what often happens is when we have some kind of noticing or observation, it almost like on an unconscious level, it gives us permission to be reactive because I have truth on my side. Right? Do you know that one? I've seen what's truthful. I'm truthful. I notice something real about myself. You know, and I'm but I actually never even got to naming it. I didn't name, I overcommitted. I just went right to being harsh with myself. So that's another way, another way to practice. Setting our intention to notice reactivity is a beautiful daily life practice. Do it two or three times a day. Notice reactivity when there's a moment during the day in which there's reactivity, pause. 
when you can, bring mindfulness. What's going on right now? Can I notice this? Can I be with it? Can I bring mindfulness and just stay with it? Noticing the reactivity, hanging out with it. Sometimes we can actually go back and see how, as in that model of dependent origination, that we are driven by pain or by pleasant experience, but the ones we'll probably notice more are the painful ones, that I am driven by pain to the reactivity. Sometimes we can go backwards and touch the pain. And that actually starts healing things. So it's an interesting thing to do. When you notice yourself caught in reactivity, ask, is there a pain or, you know, for the kind where we're pushing away? Is there something painful beneath it? Can I touch that? What is it? And sometimes if we touch that, it starts drying up the reactivity. One way of doing that is by um, going from sometimes the verbal level into the body, around the heart, and just saying, what's there? What's beneath my verbal reactivity? And sometimes we can feel the pain. It could be manifesting as anger or sadness. And when we touch that, the reactivity may dry up. It's an interesting practice. You know, I remember doing that once at a retreat where I was caught in reactivity at a retreat at Spirit Rock. I think it was uh, February, and there was a really long line for lunch. And uh, it was raining outside. I was near the end of the line, and I was getting into reactivity. Oh, they've just, I bet you they're having tacos. And they've just arranged it so there's so many condiments. Everyone's taking hours to go through the condiments. And I was reactive, reactive, reactive. And I had been doing a practice like going down into the body. And, you know, I had reactivity for 10 minutes. And I said, oh, I'll do that practice. Because you know, it, it takes time to recover, right, <laughs> from reactivity. And then I actually went into my body and felt, oh, there's impatience. You could call that a kind of pain. You know, pain being more a rubric for the unpleasant, you know, so unpleasant situation, painful in a certain sense. Impatience, a pain, you know, an unpleasant experience. I touched the impatience, hung out with it, and the reactivity dried up when I actually touched what was painful. And I was correct, they were serving tacos. And uh, they could have done it better. <laughs> they could have lined it up better. But that's what I was noticing. This is from James Baldwin, the great African-American writer. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. It's a powerful one. He's suggesting that a lot of the reactivity at the social level is because of unprocessed pain. 
of course, often manipulated by politicians, right? But that when we actually would touch the pain, such as, I don't know, working class people having factories move away, not as many jobs and so forth, you know, and politicians can not really deal with the pain, but scapegoat, right? And so it's a very powerful quotation from, from Baldwin. So I think I'll, I'll stop here and move towards our discussion. Let me just uh, end with two quotations that I read before. This mind and heart are radiant and brightly shining, freed from visiting reactivity. And then from Achan Cha, just go into the room and put a chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. I would say reactivity, non-reactivity, all sorts of things. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. So we keep the one seat in our formal meditation, and then we find ways to bring that center into being with reactivity in the middle of our actions and interactions. So I'll stop here, and thank you for your kind attention and your practice, and invite, uh, let's invite first just a moment of silent reflection for a minute or so what may have resonated with you from the talk and also from your practice in the last two weeks. Take about a minute. And then ask, is there anything to ask, any question to ask, anything to share based on what you may have found in your own experience? Anything that came up during the talk? And Susan, will you, uh, I can see people in the hall, will people come up to the come up, walk up, and ask their question or share, give their sharing. And I'd like to just say, if anyone has a question here, we, they can come sort of stand where I am, would be great. And if you have a question on Zoom, just raise your hand, and that way we can call on you as well. Yeah. You can raise your physical hand. And if you have... Uh, if it works to have your video on, if you're on Zoom, that would be great just to be able to see people, if that works for you. If you could, that would be great. This is a really 
something that's been Hi. Thank you, Tom. If you can move a little bit to your right, then I could see you. I can't see you right now. There you go. Now I see me too. Um, something that happened over the last two weeks interested me, which was that the one thing, uh, it was interesting, but the other thing is that I found it pretty easy to let go of the reactivity to aversion. Yeah. In other words, when something was bothering me and I was getting mad and I was kind of, you know, tense and stuff, I could just go, wait a minute, you know, don't do that. And it felt really spacious and wonderful. And so that got easier. However, the craving, mostly around food, sweet food, um, was harder to let go of. And I'm not sure I did. And it was real... You know, I just didn't want to. I just well, kept coming back to it. You know, and I know what's in the kitchen there that I can have, but so it was a real denial sort of thing. Yeah. Deprivation. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I mean Yeah, well, and say your name for people. Lori. Lori. Yeah. Um a few things. One is that I would suggest as the first strategy when you can to be mindful and stay with it, not so much to not to go too quickly to letting go. Oh. Yeah, we, we want to really bring the mindfulness to it. If if the mindfulness by itself results in it ending, well that that's okay. But not but there's a real value in studying the reactivity, noticing the patterns, uh, noticing what the trigger is. Even in reflection, what you know, what because we want to know what are my common triggers. You know, uh, there'll be certain things for each of us that trigger us, and some things that trigger one person don't trigger the other, right? So we want to study that. Um, so that's that's the first point. But then uh, I think just uh, just that just to find what you found. You know, another way we could say it is that the craving seems to go a little more deeply, has a little more of a hook with you, right? At least with the things you were looking at. That's really important to know, right? And to um, appreciate. And again, I would suggest to uh, really uh, bring the mindfulness to it and explore it. Again, know, we want to know what triggers the craving. Be really clear on that. You know, what... Um, uh, what does it feel like when there's craving? What's that like? Um, you know, and then, you know, when you've looked at it a lot, then ask, uh, you know, what helps me to let go of the grasping? And another thing to, to explore it would be, give, it's helpful to give a numerical value on that scale of 1 to 10, and to know, because my guess is that on the scale of 1 to 10, when you're talking about the craving, it's probably higher up on that scale than the examples of aversion. That'd be my guess, based on what you said. And it's good to give it a, a value. And also, explore what it's like to work with craving that's not as intense. Maybe the ones you're describing are 7s or 8s. Just, you know, a guess. Try working with craving that's a four or a five. Could be with food, right? Notice, notice what that's like. 
and see, you know, see how you relate to it. Those are, those are a few thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, interesting. The, but the whole area is just so interesting and fascinating to explore. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Anyone else want to share maybe what you explored in the last week or ask a question or some some area that I didn't didn't go into? And remember, uh, half-baked questions are totally welcome. They don't have to be fully baked. Or it could be a sharing, doesn't have to be a question. This is Deborah. Can you see me? Okay, uh, Deborah, right? Right. So, one thing that was valuable for me about this talk is shooting the second arrow. And it's, um, you know, I did really good for a couple of days, but it doesn't last, you know, and I just want to forget it or, you know, just not deal with it, you know, how, how do you keep it going and keep it, you know, keep it mindful? And maybe I need to put a rubber band around my wrist or something. Yeah, yeah. How to, how to keep it going with the uh, practice of noticing reactivity. Well, it's great that it, it was alive for a few days. Uh, this is where there are multiple ways of um, supporting it. With, you know, yeah, by all means, uh, have something, you know, uh, a rubber band, uh, you know, a bracelet that you wear that reminds you of that way. Put it, put a sign on your refrigerator. Remember reactivity. <laughs> you know, you have to maybe get agreement for the rest of your household <laughs> on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, definitely have signs and then work with intentionality uh, a few times a day. Uh, community support is another really important factor. Could be having one friend and you send a text or an email to each other every day. And maybe you talk to each other every five days, right? And so, you, you know, if you have a kind of partnership with someone like that, you could have accountability and you could remember and that will really make a, a big difference. And so different aspects of community could play a role. You know, uh, you know, if, you know, Benicia Sangha was going into reactivity, it could get the names of people interested, could send out an email every three days. Remember reactivity. So that could be helpful. And, and find ways so that it actually comes alive for you, like having, uh, you know, having pauses during the day so you really feel the benefit. You know, find pauses and and uh, and I was, so I would say start again. Uh, maybe find those kinds of inner and outer supports, and that can, and you could also you know listen to the talk again. It's on Dharma Seed. Listen to the talk or part of the talk uh, every three or four days. So all those things can be helpful. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah, and then the other. Thing. I just wanted to say thank you, too, because I do volunteer work for a poodle rescue organization, and we do snipe at each other a lot, you know, and it, um, 
you know, and I wondered about that because we're here to help the dogs and the dogs come to us in horrible shape and people don't take care of them. And, but, you know, there's so much dissension sometimes in the organization. So I just, you know, I really learned that maybe it is that, you know, it's, we can't fight with the people on the outside. So we, you know, we're relieving that pressure by sniping each other on the inside. So. Yeah, yeah, it, it happens in a lot of organizations. And what can be helpful is, you know, not always possible, but to, uh, you know, bring it up in a meeting. And um, maybe you can have guidelines. You know, uh, I, I once uh, taught, uh, I think I was doing this teaching when I was, uh, you know, at some of the time when I was with the Benicia Sangha regularly, uh, I taught at a graduate school and we, you know, we had communication issues. We set up a communication committee and I was on it and we agreed to uh, follow the guidelines of wise speech. Now, now you may not want to you know, call it that, but to have uh, communication guidelines or just remember to, you know, treat everyone with respect and, you know, find your own language, but something like that. Group guidelines can be really, really helpful because the guidelines are basically embodying non-reactivity, we could say in many ways, along with, you know, care and kindness and, you know, and, and yeah, so that's a lar way larger issue, but it's, I think we're going to deal with that some in December. We're doing a day long with, you know, with uh, all together. Uh, I think it was called Why Speech for the Holidays. <laughs> Oh, I like that. I in like December, that. and we can bring in the theme of uh, groups and organizations and how to have wise speech at that level. That sounds good. Okay, yeah. all right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. Maybe time for one more person. Could be someone online if you'd like. I can mention something that I, um, just today we were, I'm in a training program for a particular type of certification, in fact, around communication. So it's um, very fitting, your talk. But one of the things that, uh, and it's a saying I've heard before, but it was hysterical means historical. <laughs> and the noting of that. Because I think what it led me to was, okay, so first then that gives me some agency, right? It's not about, not about the conversation, it's about something that triggered inside. But I think it's also knowing actually when you are reacting. Yeah. That if you live in reaction land most of the time, sometimes it's even just knowing you're in reaction. That's right. That is a hurdle to get over before you can even sort of work with it. Do you know what I mean? So it was that little saying that just stuck with me. I know, right. Oh, you know, that's my reaction. It has to do with me, and now I can do something. That's right, yeah. And uh, the reactivity has roots in my own history, my own background. And another very useful phrase, similar, is the phrase, uh, hurt people hurt people. In other mm -hmm. words, um, reactivity, you know, uh, the one... You know, the main the form of reactivity is connected with aversion and negativity is driven by pain. That's what, you know, that's what the teaching of dependent origination says. 
And so we can have some understanding compassion for people who are doing things that may be hurtful or negative or reactive and, and know that it's coming out of pain, you know, and of course, sometimes we just have to defend ourselves verbally or otherwise, and it's harder to have the compassion. But at a certain point, we can remember that, uh, you know, that line, which is, you know, very, very, uh, what, uh, very, very consistent with Buddhist teachings, hurt people, hurt people. And so fundamental and really rooting, rooting things in compassion, right? Uh, so I think that's getting at the same thing you're bringing up, too. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're at we're at the top of the hour. Should we finish? Take a few more. What do you think? I think we're about done. It's just six o'clock, so we're gonna okay. we're gonna thank you, Donald, so so very much. This was just a wonderful talk. Um, always a wonderful talk, and you're always a wonderful presenter. And it was great over these past two sessions. You just really opened up this as something to really explore and reflect and then bringing into our daily lives. So thank you so much. That's great. And I will tell I made recordings. I've made recordings both of the guided meditation and of uh, the talk right now. And I will put both of them on Dharma Seed. So they will be available uh, for the public if you want to listen again. And I'll, I'll send the uh, I'll send the link so they can be distributed through Venetia uh, Insight Meditation. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I'd just like to say you can help clean up after. That would be terrific. And thank you to our Zoomers. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, those in the hall. Thank you, those on Zoom. And uh, great to great to see everyone. And until until next time. And Keep the not. I should end with a few. Uh, let me end with two things. Uh, first, uh, see what may have spoken to you this evening, and whether you want to have an intention coming out of our time together, maybe related to reactivity. Take thirty seconds, a minute, right now. What's my intention coming out of our time together? Maybe to get a bracelet that says non-reactivity. <laughs> and then we close with the dedication of merit, traditional ending of a session. May the benefits of our time together be there for us, be there for those in our own lives, and beyond our own circles, be there ultimately for all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. May our time together be a benefit to all beings, which includes us.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. A pleasure. The magic of Zoom. Amazing. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thanks for all the help organizing. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you.